basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Uh, today we have another installment of a Terranauts guide to leaving the planet. When we left uh, Project Mercury, uh, the team was riding high after finally having gotten Monkey off their back by getting an American into orbit for the first time. More to the point, uh, we were seeing that the manned space program was actually coming of age and kind of growing beyond. Project Mercury. The new manned space center in Houston was being built, and the project and flight control teams were moving to Texas. The Apollo and Gemini programs were starting up, and they were growing fast. The first generation of Mercury engineers and flight controllers were moving on to more senior roles in the new programs. Junior engineers that had paid their dues in the remote sites of the Mercury Global Network we're coming back to Mercury Control to become the second generation of flight controllers on the program. And remember, this is all in the winter of 1962, which was not even three years after the inception of Project Mercury. It had already produced veterans who were busily training the new generation of flight controllers. Now, bear in mind that many of those veterans were probably barely 30 years old, and the new generation was even younger. In fact, if you worked in this environment and had seen your 40th birthday, they would probably be calling you Gramps. It was a young, motivated, and ambitious team. They were basically in the process of inventing human spaceflight, and they knew it. They had taken a discipline that was all about rocketry, about fuel and oxidizers, pumps and pressures, specific impulse and delta V, and had turned it into a discipline where the rocketry was just the very first part of the process. They had turned it into a discipline that was all about flight plans and mission objectives and tracking and telemetry, procedures, practice, and execution, about reaction control and re-entry. They had moved from talking about launching rockets to talking about flying spacecraft. In effect, they were giving birth to the profession that I now call the Terranaut. It must have been an exciting time. But there was not really a whole lot of time to enjoy their successes, even as John Glenn was suddenly becoming famous and being swept up into the vortex of visits to the White House, public appearances, and ticker tape parades. The rest of Project Mercury was preparing for the next orbital flight, barely five months later. I talked last time about the small controversy that erupted over the next Mercury flight, when Deke Slayton, who was scheduled to fly, was first of all replaced at the last minute because of a health issue, but also that he was replaced not with his backup, but with John Glenn's backup, Scott Carpenter. It's a measure of the transformation that was underway at NASA that what might have been an important but very internal decision within Project Mercury a year before had now become literally a subject of national interest and a topic which attracted the attention not only of senior NASA management, but the political level as well. 
But once the decision was made, it was made. And so, at 1.15 on the morning of the 24th of May, 1962, Scott Carpenter began his day in Hangar S in Cape Canaveral with a breakfast of steak and eggs. His day would end a few hundred miles away near the U.S. Virgin Islands, but it would take him multiple orbits of the planet for him to get there. Carpenter entered his Mercury spacecraft, dubbed Aurora 7, at 5 a.m., and on schedule at 7.45, Aurora 7 launched atop its Mercury Atlas booster, and Carpenter became the fourth American in space and was on track to become the second to orbit the planet. The countdown launch and ascent were about as nominal as anyone in mission control could have hoped for, and Scott Carpenter began working on his busy flight plan. In many ways, Carpenter's missions was very similar uh, to John Glenn's. With so little time between the launches, there really had been no time to make any major changes to the capsule itself, although some minor changes, such as deleting the red filter on the window and getting rid of the knee and chest straps on the astronaut couch had been implemented. Uh, and as, but as well, the basic flight plan of three orbits was more or less identical. The big difference was to the amount of science that Carpenter was expected to perform. Whereas Glenn's flight had mostly been about getting him to space and determining how he was able to operate the spacecraft, the success of that mission had convinced NASA, uh, the science team at NASA, that they could use the astronaut time on orbit to, to much better advantage by designing a series of experiments for Carpenter to perform. These ranged from releasing a small multicolored balloon that would remain tethered to the capsule, to observing the behavior of uh, liquid in a weightless environment, to taking weather photographs and studying the airglow layer of the atmosphere. All of these experiments required um, a significant degree of attention, and they required Carpenter to find and manipulate and then store equipment, often repeatedly. Some of these tasks, which would have been simple on Earth, ended up actually taking a lot more time in a weightless environment. Many of the observation experiments either required or invited Carpenter to maneuver the spacecraft, which meant that the amount of on-orbit maneuvering far exceeded that that was performed by John Glenn. Unbeknownst to Carpenter and the flight control team, uh, at least for the first little while, there were also some significant issues with the capsule's attitude control system. When I talked about John Glenn's flight, I mentioned that the topic of attitude control had been one of the abiding concerns uh, of engineers and flight controllers in the lead-up to the first orbital flight. Now, Glenn's performance had allayed those fears to some extent because he proved that the lack of gravity did not, uh, in fact, result in debilitating disorientation. And so it was for Scott Carpenter. He experimented and was quite comfortable with many different orientations of the spacecraft, including one in which he pointed the nose towards the Earth. In fact, uh, he described the experience as exhilarating. However, as Carpenter was performing these maneuvers, the capsule's automatic attitude sensing systems were falling farther and farther out of calibration. Even at the start of the mission, the attitude sensor had been out by more than 20 degrees. Could have been recalibrated. Wasn't. 
at least partly because it wasn't necessary for Carpenter's own situational awareness. Similarly, several times during the mission, the gyros on the capsule did not properly track maneuvers, either because they didn't cage properly on their own, or maybe because Carpenter did not go through the caging procedure prior to starting the maneuver. Once again, for Carpenter, this wasn't an issue because he didn't need those aids in order to control the spacecraft. But for controllers on the ground, it was an issue because without properly calibrated instruments, they couldn't follow Carpenter's maneuvers. And if they didn't have good data, they wouldn't be able to help him if a problem developed. And of course, a problem developed. Essentially, all of the maneuvering meant that as Carpenter entered his final orbit, he was down to less than half of his fuel remaining, and a significant amount of that fuel was needed for the re-entry process. The fuel situation was actually critical enough that Mercury Control asked Carpenter to stop maneuvering altogether and just drift through much of his last orbit. While drifting, he busied himself with other experiments, including observation of the airglow layer. As he was passing over Hawaii, he had approximately 40% fuel remaining, and that should have been enough for a nominal re-entry. But then Murphy started paying attention, and he started making Carpenter and the flight control team pay for not having sorted out those attitude control systems issues earlier. As Carpenter began to reorient for re-entry, he found that the automatic system, which depended on those sensors, wouldn't hold the required attitude. Flight controllers on the ground struggled to help troubleshoot the problem because the instruments on board were clearly sending data that was different than what Carpenter was seeing on orbit. This caused Carpenter to fall behind in his re-entry preparations and, critically, use a lot more fuel than normally would have been expected. In the end, the re-entry burn had to be performed manually, which meant that it was performed late. Carpenter had to perform the orientation for the burn almost entirely by eye, with no instrument backup and no checks from the ground. Further, the ground could not confirm his attitude and therefore could not accurately project his trajectory. And then he ran out of gas partway through the re-entry and couldn't control the attitude of the spacecraft. All in all, all in all, it did not end the mission on a high note. It also did nothing to endear Scott Carpenter to the mission control team. More on that in a minute. As a result of the late and inaccurate burn and the uncontrolled entry, Aurora 7 landed several hundred kilometers from the planned landing point, meaning that recovery aircraft and ships had to be scrambled to his new location. This was a bit of a public embarrassment for NASA, because while his landing point was predicted quite accurately once the track of the capsule could be determined, it was still not enough for any aircraft or ship to reach the landing site as Aurora 7 splashed down. In fact, it was almost an hour before any recovery unit reached the site. The Mercury program history reports kind of dryly that since Carpenter's raft had no radio, the drama was heightened. What exactly had happened to Carpenter after his landing was known only to the astronaut and perhaps a few seagulls and sea bass. Unquote. Carpenter famously reported that, quote, I didn't know where I was and Mercury Control didn't either. In fact, the fact that this was actually quite untrue further did not endear Scott Carpenter 
to the flight control. In fact, the way his mission ended did not endear Scott Carpenter to many within NASA. And while most official sources don't dwell on the issue, uh, the fact of the matter is that Scott Carpenter never flew again. Um, Gene Krantz is a little bit less circumspect in his autobiography, in which he says, quote, Scotty's mission was close, too damn close. A crewman distracted and behind in the flight plan is a risk to the mission and himself. And thus, Carpenter's flight brought into kind of sharp relief a new transformation that was happening within NASA, um, a transformation in terms of how spaceflight was not only conducted, but how it was seen and how it was planned. And importantly, who should be involved in planning it and making decisions before and during the flight. As I noted before, NASA had undergone uh, one of these transitions already in the early days of the space task group, when the spacecraft engineers kind of supplanted the rocket scientists as the primary driving force behind the program. Well, now a new tension was rising, and that was the tension between those who design, build, launch spacecraft, and those who fly on them, between the ground and the orbit, between Terranauts and astronauts. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't mean tension in the sense of conflict or even lack of a shared sense of purpose, but there is definitely a sense of an evolving um, discussion about priorities and roles and eh, maybe even precedence. In the same way that von Braun's rocket scientists had had to make room for Gilruth and Kraft and the spacecraft engineers, um, the spacecraft engineers were needing to figure out how to make room for the crew. See, in the early days of Project Mercury, some test pilots had actually been kind of disparaging of the role of the astronaut and had said jokingly that astronauts would have to sweep the uh, monkey feces off their seats before getting into the capsule. The point being that the role of the astronaut didn't appear to be that of a real test pilot. Um, and in some ways that characterization may not have been entirely unfair, at least as the role was initially defined. Project Mercury was a project conceived and brought to life by engineers. Engineers who believed that they were trying to accomplish something that was extremely difficult, maybe even impossible. And as such, they designed a project where absolutely everything was subordinated to the primary objective of getting to orbit with a capsule containing a live human being, bringing that same capsule with that same live human being home again safely. To some extent, the human being actually was almost incidental. I mean, they had to be there in order to accomplish the mission, but they were really seen as kind of being part of the overall system, almost like their own um, engineering subsystem of the spacecraft, rather than being its uh, pilot and commander. In the original conception of Project Mercury, it was almost like the engineers saw the astronaut function as being kind of like um, an advanced backup system a very sophisticated backup system and one that could respond to complex problems and one that they could interact with from the ground and one that could also act, you know, at least semi-autonomously. But the ground could and did monitor all of the critical systems on orbit and they were able to exert a significant degree of control remotely over the spacecraft. 
I mean, even the accommodations of the astronaut could be seen as having grown out of kind of this uh, conception, the mission. I mean, it was famously said that astronauts did not so much uh, fly aboard a Mercury capsule as wear it into space. And the space allotted for the human uh, occupant inside the capsule was really the bare minimum that was required. And it made no more concessions to comfort than was absolutely required. And no allowance at all for activities outside of those essential to operating the spacecraft and staying alive and being filled up and emptied as necessary during the mission. The astronauts didn't even have a front window. The only direct exterior view was obtained by looking left and down through the window in the hatch, a window that had actually only been added later in the design at the insistence of the crew. To see ahead, the astronauts actually had to look through a periscope whose eyepiece was directly in front of them, but which they had to lean forward to look through and which had a pretty narrow field of view. In the end, the crew found it so difficult to use that it was actually removed from the later Mercury flights to save weight. In short, rather than starting with a human and designing a capsule to carry him or her into orbit, the Mercury spacecraft started with a capsule and the human operator was kind of integrated into it as one of its critical systems. And, you know, that could largely be said about the whole of Project Mercury. I mean, it would be wrong to call the astronauts an afterthought, Project Mercury. They were, after all, very much the point of the program. But their role, to some extent, was an afterthought. They were going to be there. They had to be. But beyond acting as a payload and potentially a sophisticated fail-safe system, um, the original Mercury concept really didn't seem to know why they were there. And, of course, uh, what you thought of the answer to that question depended largely on where you were coming from. The opinion of the engineers, mission planners, and flight controllers had not evolved all that much from the original conception. For them, the human in the loop was there to ensure smooth execution of a flight plan, to respond to contingencies as required, and to work as part of the team that was focused on flying a successful mission, as defined well before launch. To NASA scientists and researchers, the crew on orbit was seen as a resource for conducting experiments. To this group, there was really no point in putting a human in space just to say we'd done so. Going to space provided access to a vast array of new scientific investigations and paved the way for humans to literally break the surly bonds of Earth and Earthbound thinking. They were determined that absolutely every opportunity should be taken to test and experiment and learn from spaceflight. And for them, an astronaut needed to be not just a passenger, but an experimenter and also a test subject. But this, of course, collided with the flight controller's natural tendency to view the primary job of the whole flight control team, including the crew, um, as being to operate the spacecraft safely and within specifications, including ensuring that it got home safely when and where it was supposed to. They were less concerned about the scientific objectives of the flight plan and more about ensuring that it could perform, be performed successfully. The crew, on the other hand, I think, had always taken a bit more um, personal and proprietary view of their flights. For a flight crew, uh, every trip aboard the spacecraft was their flight. Uh, they named the spacecraft. They were the ones who got on board, who were there, 
they could use all of their senses to understand what was happening and when ground controllers could really only use the data that telemetry provided to them. Furthermore, as we discussed in the last episode of Terranauts with Chris, there was no one else who had any more stake in a successful mission than the crew on board. For the crew, when it came right down to it, they were, in the time-honored tradition, the captains of their ships. Once they were on board, and that ship had left the dock, they expected to exercise executive authority over what happened on board. Viewed from a distance of almost 60 years, Scott Carpenter's mission brings these various opinions into sharp relief, as I said. Eh, probably more sharpenedly at this remove than was felt at the time, honestly. I think the sorting out of the role of the crew and the ground and the science team and the mission operations team is something that evolved, and in fact it's still arguably evolving today. But I think it is also fair to say that the flight of Aurora 7 also brought home to everyone that the crew was going to have a role beyond simply being a passenger on board the spacecraft, whether anyone else liked it or not. Yeah, maybe that's a little unfair. I think that once it was clear that humans could and would perform well in space, the culture at NASA embraced the attitude that the crew were a separate and critical part of the team. They were critical not only for flying successful missions, but their input was also critical for planning those missions, and in fact designing the spacecraft and running the programs as well. In the end, I think NASA settled into the pattern that still works today, And that is that flight planning and preparation and training are led by the ground, by the flight director in particular. But once the flight launches, the commander of the mission is on board the spacecraft. As the commander on site, he is responsible to uh, a host of authorities for how the mission performs. And he is given um, very direct and specific advice about what should be happening by the flight control team. But at the end of the day, Once the ship leaves the dock, it's ultimately in the hands of the crew on board. Um, It's a system that has actually been working very well for 60 years, and there doesn't seem to be any need to change it now. But I do definitely think that it evolved out of the experience, particularly of Scott Carpenter's flight. And as we will see as the story of Project Mercury continues, um, the settling into these new roles will take a few flights, uh, but ultimately it's going to be critical to the success of the project, and to all of those that followed. So we'll pick up the story of Project Mercury after Scott Carpenter's flight with the next installment of the Terranauts Guide to Leaving the Planet. That's going to do it for today. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. If you uh, want to support the podcast, please uh, take the opportunity to rate it on your podcast app, to respond to us with some feedback, or to recommend us to a friend. Thanks very much for listening. Talk to you soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.